Hello and welcome. This is The Other Modern, a podcast about the MSEM Magic Set Editor custom magic format. Um, I'm your host, Piper, also known as that damn pipsqueak, and joining me this week is Cyberchronometer. Hello, I'm Cyberchronometer. Um, this episode, we are going to be doing an attempted deep dive into midrange, and Cyberchronometer is here to talk about it, partly because they won the last Pro Tour with a midrange deck. Um, but before we talk into really what midrange is and how you build it in the current format at, as it is, I kind of want to give a history lesson about the history of midrange in MSEM. So going back to Season 1, the breakout midrange deck of Season 1 pretty much inarguably was uh, Underworld Cookbook, which was a combo midrange deck that utilized Savage Congregation to immediately combo kill its opponents via putting together a life gain combo, uh, specifically using... What's the black creature that it leverages? Um, it's Underworld something. False Savior? Oh, False Savior. Is the one that whenever you gain life, target opponent loses that much life. Got it, yeah. And it has an ability that flips coins that does not matter and will never and from there, you then immediately use your Master Chef to sacrifice your uh, spell root tokens and immediate or spell root spell root and your plant tokens, and you immediately kill your opponent by doming them for thirty. The deck also had a powerful mid range backup plan where it just used Mother Bears and um, sorry Snowfield Mothers rather and uh, Doctor what's Doctor C's name. Dark De- Right Cultist. Dark Right Cultist. Death Right Cultist. No, it's Dark Right. It's Dark Right. Okay, Dark Right Cultist. Cunning Cephalomancer. Um, for brief summaries on each of those, uh, Snowfield Mother is green, green, and two for a 4-4 bear with when it enters, you gain four life, and when it leaves, you get a 2-2 bear. Um, Cunning Cephalomancer was, back then, black for a 1-1 with lifelink, and whenever you sacrifice a permanent, you may pay one if you do draw a card. Now the card... Draw a card and lose one life. Draw a card and lose one life. The card now reads, non-land permanent, back during that deck's success, it procked off fetch lands. Um, the deck also ran um, Dark Right Cultist and was responsible for that card's nerf. The card is black for a 1-1, with black, tap, sacrifice it, sacrifice another creature, and discard a card, you get a 5-5 demon of fly. It did not use to have the tap symbol, meaning it could activate the turn it came down, which was a very big power shift. So the deck had an incredibly fair mid-range plan. It had a bunch of life gain, which meant it was really difficult as a aggro deck to get through it. It gummed up the ground with very effective blockers. It had a strong clock in the form of Dr. C and Snowfield Mother. And it had the one-card-I-win combo off of the uh, Savage Congregation, which is now banned and has gone through several revisions. Um, the card back then was green, green, and three. Um, search your library for any number of creature cards with total power four or more, sorry, four or less, and put them into your hand, then shuffle your library. Uh, Ferocious, if you controlled a creature with power four or greater when you cast it, instead put those creatures onto the battlefield. Um, and that's how it would put together its instant kill combo of um, false savior and a sufficient number of tokens. So, notably, this was extremely interaction light for a mid-range deck. Yeah, this this deck's interaction was blocker-heavy um, and had a bunch of life gain. Right. So it beat 
the Agrodex via being this kind of grindy control value plan, and it beat the control decks via having a bunch of grindy value that it was hard to outcard advantage them, and a whoops, you die now thing that meant you could never tap out. Yes. But if we if it had run against true combo, which there was not a lot of at that point in time, it probably would have a slightly hard time, at the very least pre-board. Yeah. Post-board, it obviously gets to run Seal the Tombs, it gets to run all the good answers that right. Black has. Duresses, etc. Um, after the reign of uh, Underworld Cookbook, which won three successive GPs, and with each GP, I believe, earned a different nerf, um, until eventually the deck stopped seeing play, we had a rise in mid-range decks that primarily relied on the split card Rock Roll. Now, at that point in time, um, Rock was green, green, and two. Sorcery, search your library for two basic lands and put them onto the battlefield tapped. This part of the card was never used. The No. Oh, right. Yeah, it had already gotten is, the first yes. round of nerfs. Yes. Um, the relevant portion of the card is Roll. Green, green, and three. For each uh, land you control with a different name, you create a 3-3 green elemental creature token. This card has since been made 6 mana, but for the duration, for this kind of era, it was a defining mid-range win condition. It also saw play as a control deck win con, but roll decks were defined as just having either a smattering of interaction, uh, just nobody's Jund roll had, I believe, 8 main deck discard spells, and then 4 impulsive plans to pitch them when it no longer needed them. Um, as well as a couple of finisher of non-roll finishers, such as I believe a couple of Snowfield Mothers and some Sanjins. But really it was killing you via casting roll and generating an entire board full of tokens. Roll was especially effective because at five mana, generating 15 power is just unparalleled. And the ability to easily make your mana base Highlander, um, that is, there's only one copy of everything, was trivial in MSEM. Um the kind of rise and fall of these roll decks, and th there are other mid-range decks that happen during this time as well. There's Dark Canada, which is a low-to-the-ground, almost tempo-like Mardu mid-range deck pioneered by Hersey. Um, some variants of it pop up. It arguably evolves into both Cat Tax, which was a red-white, Planeswalker-heavy aggro mid-range deck, as well as Red-Black X. Um, also known as Rhythm and Blues in its red-black incarnation, and um, Loathing Hate Malice in its Grixis incarnation. Pandalus Jund in its Jund incarnation. Um, all of these decks share a lot of the same DNA of disruptive, aggressive or uh, disruption, aggressive creatures, Red Burn for Reach, especially Rogars, and Lady Jen as a top end. And Zetla as a core disruption piece. Um I'm not going to talk about all those, but I think Zetla is really important to understand how these decks work, because especially because it showed up in Jundral as well. Zetla is red-black for a uh, Planeswalker that enters with three starting loyalty throughout most of this time. At uh, the very beginning, it was still on four starting loyalty. Dark Canada got to play with the original version. It had um, minus one, target player discards a card and loses one life. Minus two, target player discards a card at random. And minus three, um, each player draws four cards and then discards four cards. So it can be a delayed, they discard three cards and lose three life. It can be uh, they discard a card at random and then discard a card and lose one life. 
back when it used to be have four starting loyalty, it had the ability to do they discard a card at random, they discard a card at random. But yeah, Zetla is the reason why Midrange was able to bully control and sometimes have a game against combo. The life loss there was also extremely relevant for triggering Crippa. Which is specifically relevant on uh, Lady Genevieve, Genevieve of Calder. Um, Lady Genevieve of Calder is red-black and four for a 4-4 four, four, and has cripple, one black-red. Those of you who play not a lot of MSEM but play a lot of standard might know cripple as the Watsy name, Spectacle. Uh, cripple came out years before Spectacle. Um, and Lady Gen also has, at the beginning of each end step, if an opponent lost life this turn, draw two cards, then discard a card at random. Constantly generating card advantage when your opponent ever has to fetch, when your opponent uses a pain land, when you bolt your opponent on your turn, when you rokers them at the end of their turn, or second main phase, um, is incredibly brutal to fight through. Lady Gen feels like the one, one of the strongest cards in your deck every time you every time she lines up well into what your opponent's doing. So all of those said, the there's a kind of other DNA that's running alongside these decks, which is, we mentioned the kind of low-to-the-ground, ag- aggro-tempo mid-range style shells. And there's also the bigger, slower mid-range decks that act more along control decks. Um, Green-Black Kaijun, um, primarily pioneered by Fifth Dragon, although I brought it to a couple of GPs, is one of them. So this deck was defined as mana dorks that could accelerate out an early uh, Kaijun, who used to be black, black, two, six, six, undying, but enter the battlefield, sacrifice all other creatures you control. The card currently is sacrifice it unless you sacrifice two other permanents. Um, as a result, it's no longer playable. As a result, it definitely doesn't see play. These Kaijun control decks were also known for packing a lot of board wipes for basically just beating aggro decks senseless via having main deck Sanjin, um, who's a very effective blocker, and ramps you, Snow Moms. Uh, I pioneered the main deck Antithesis in that list, which treated me very well the one time I was running around with it. Um, and in some occasions, the deck was so soft to combo, it was running four main deck press, which is reasonable, and then two to three main deck seal the tomb, which was significantly less reasonable. I still regret that a little bit. <laughs> um, so all of these mid-range decks that existed kind of rose and fall until shortly before the Pro Tour when uh, Tales of Old Zhangxi and Carpe Arcanum, also known as TOJ and CAC, entered the format. N- most notably, CAC brought a card that really changed the face of mid-range decks. Artie's Study. Artie's Study is one green green for an enchantment. Study. Or enchantment study? Enchantment study. study. Yeah, study. Um, and it has Archive 5. If you have not gotten the chance to play with Archives yet, what Archives do is they're effectively an aura for a new library. 5 refers to how many cards you take off the top of your deck, then shuffle to create this new library. The archive is placed face up, or the new deck is placed face up, and artists and each of the archives has an ability associated with them. If you destroy the uh, enchantment, the the library doesn't go away, but it loses the benefits of whatever ability the study was granting it, which is usually why you wanted that extra library in the first place. So Artie's study in particular says you may play the top card of your uh, of the library. As long as it's a land, or as long as it's a permanent, permanent card. card, 
the effect of this is if you manage to build an all-permanent or almost all-permanent deck, Artie Study is effectively one green-green, draw five. Um, as you can imagine, this is extremely powerful as a card advantage engine for any deck that doesn't want to cast instants and sorceries. And or at least not very many of them. Generally speaking, you can get away with running about five instants and sorceries without significantly decreasing the effectiveness of Artie's study. You can get away with running, I believe it was 11, and still reliably draw at least four cards off of it. And in fact, at this point in time, the enchant or the non-creature spell, non-permanent spell that already study decks were usually choosing to run was roll, because roll at that point in time was just the best five mana finisher you could ask for. So, the, what what were the things, especially in the Pro Tour, in your experience, that really made already study decks feel powerful? Because that was the breakout moment of the right. already study deck. So there were sort of a few different key pieces of what made the RD Study decks powerful. The draw engine of RD Study, allowing you to bury even control decks in card advantage, was frankly kind of disgusting. Um, the, the fact that these sort of base blue, instant heavy control decks could not keep up with a green deck in card draw was terrifying. Second, the threats were matched up very well against the field. I was able to run Declar the Mother Bear, who at the time dodged most of the played removal. Kirishima, who is removal in her own right and just absolutely makes aggro decks stop functioning as well as winning mid-range mirrors reasonably effectively. Um, and of course, roll, which is the best threat the format has ever seen as of when it was still five mana. Um, yeah. Finally, the fact that with mana dorks and particularly mana aesthetic, which at the time could be exiled from your graveyard to produce mana, meaning that even if they had a removal spell for your turn one mana dork, you could still play a three drop on turn two meant that the deck had the ability to, on occasion, either rush out an arty study before a control deck's answers were available, or rush out threats in time to potentially kill combo decks, which otherwise the deck had a lot of trouble dealing with. Um, so, moving into more of the present day, we still see a lot of those arty study style mid-range decks around. And those, I think, were the first mid-range decks that look like what people kind of conceptualize the mid-range deck to look like. There's a lot of two-for-ones in them that are very... They play to the board a lot. They interact with their opponent, but usually while furthering their own game plan. There's not a lot of dead cards in them. And there's a lot of an ability to pivot into, I need to get under this person versus I need to go over this person. Moving forward from that point we've really mostly seen that flavor of mid-range. We've seen a couple other things that come close. Um, in particular, some kind of more Planeswalker-focused mid-range decks. The same DNA of Dark Canada that we've talked about in the past has really started to blur more and more aggressively with tempo decks, especially as Almgrove Champion becomes more popular. 
And it's been... There's, there's some controversy over what decks count or don't count as mid-range. I know I argue with Hersey a lot about whether or not um, Sultai Chart is mid-range or control. Um, based on pl- playing it more from my experience, I'm now willing to accept that it's significantly more of a control deck than it looks like. But it had that same mid-range feeling of, here's my two-for-one, here's my two-for-one, here's my big mana engine that allows me to play this ridiculously oversized card advantage engine. And, but I think really at this current moment, Artie's study decks are the mid-range decks. I don't think that's necessarily a fundamental truth of the format, however. I definitely think there is room for a Hunter's Hideout-style mid-range deck to arise. Hunter's Hideout is an enchantment that was specifically designed to be an answer to Artie's study that Artie's study couldn't run. It's one green-green for an enchantment. It has an activated ability with one green-green, discard a non-land card, destroy target artifact or enchantment. It also has, at the beginning of your end step, if there are 12 or more cards in your graveyard, create two 3-3 beast creature tokens. This adds a lot of inevitability and slots very similar to Jund Roll style decks that we talked about um, that won Grand Prix Hong Kong? Not Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong was one of the cookbook decks. Was it just I believe it was London. I'm... You're right, it was London. Um, that one Grand Prix London in Season 1. Um, where you have to interact a bunch, you can't trip a bit, and you're, you're almost that control deck, but you do have some draws where you just dump the right cards into your graveyard, you have an online Hunter's Hideout on curve, and you just kill people with just tokens they cannot answer. Um, so yeah, those, that's kind of a brief history of mid-range in the format. And also just kind of understand of where we are now with mid-range. Um, so kind of kicking it back to you, what would be something you would want to, anyone to know if they were looking to get into mid-range in MSEM as it currently is? Um, I, think, I think we're currently in a position in MSEM where combo and fast linear decks are very popular. And I think that presents a significant problem to the sort of current and previous versions of already study mid-range that we've been seeing. Most of them have a very hard time dealing with these fast linear combo decks, especially pre-board. Post-board, there's often silver bullet enchantments that can be tutored or other options bringing in heavy discard packages. But I think that if you want to be playing mid-range in the format right now, you really have to think carefully about how you're going to handle linear decks. And I think one of the solutions there might be stop playing Artie's Study. Because Artie's Study is really good if you're trying to outvalue other mid-range decks or control decks. It's really good when you spend one green-green and say, I've drawn five cards. It's really bad when your opponent looks back at you and says, okay, I don't care how many cards you've drawn, I'm going to kill you now. And you're you've tapped out on your turn three or you've hyper accelerated turn one into a, you know, turn two. Wow. Here's my card draw. And maybe going back to a hunter's hideout style deck that hits people with a bunch of duresses is good. Um, there's a mono black villainy deck that kind of borders control and mid range. Um, that well seasoned pyromancer has been playing that I think has a lot of potential to beat combo. Um, there's a lot of different value engines out there to power mid-range decks. 
And there's a lot of different quality interaction that you can run, but you need to figure out the way you want to pitch your deck. And I think one of the fundamental truths about mid-range is you have to choose you have to choose your battles. No mid-range deck is going to be able to beat everything. And you have to choose at some point very early on, do I want to beat the fast linear decks or do I want to beat the slow grindy decks? That said, I don't think it's necessarily the case that you have to move away from Artis in order to beat combo. I think there's actually a fairly remarkable amount of permanent-based interaction in the format. In the traditional Abzan shells, you can look at things like Aguri, um, and you can look at some of the... Look at the Blue-Black Rogues deck list and note that there's some fairly good creature-based interaction available there. I'm blanking on the individual cards at the moment, but how close are you to main deck and Guiding Light in this format? I would never be excited to, but there are times when I might feel like I have to. Yeah. Especially if I'm running one of the lists that's heavy on Keeper of Holy Lands and can tutor it if needed. Mm-hmm. I could see that. Alternatively, you can pivot into blue and get creature-based counter spells like Vengeful Messenger. Um Sebring Null Mage, depending on what sort of combo decks you're expecting to face. That's true. I Sebring Null Mage is one of those cards consistently that just flits right outside of my memory of, oh yeah, that's a card we have access to. It can you read off what Sebring Null Mage does? Sebring Null Mage is a 1-1 with flash for one and a blue. When it, you cast it, no this is a cast trigger, not an enters the battlefield trigger, countering the null mage doesn't do anything. Counter target activated or triggered ability. It's stifle on a small and mostly irrelevant body. But it's stifle that's a permanent, which means you can cast it off of the top of an Artie Study. And one of the things we haven't talked about is it... So Artie Study in long games is absolutely a draw five because you will have the chance to put go through the cards. In more high-paced games, you sometimes don't have the luxury to play off the top and get the things that you want. On the other hand, there is a really powerful for lack of, no pun intended, stifling effect when your opponent sees, oh man, you have the perfect answer on top of that already study. And while that information is mutual and they can technically play around it, in some cases playing around it can really put them in a difficult or bad spot. Um, so one thing I've been kind of thinking about recently is the traditional role of midrange as the value town deck, where what it does is it generates a bunch of two-for-ones and it goes against its opponents. I kind of feel like that's outdated. I think there's very few matchups where it comes down to who generated more card advantage or more two-for-ones. And I think, to, similar to what I was saying before of it's time to leave Artie Steady behind, maybe it's not time to leave Artie Steady behind, but maybe it's time to rely just on the Artie Studies as your source of two-for-ones. And instead, you need to be focused on interacting and doing other things. What do you think about that? I hmm. I think relying solely on Artie's study as your source of two-for-ones isn't actually a good plan. And the reason for that is, if that's your only way of generating card advantage... In the matchups where card advantage actually matters, in the mid-range mirrors, in the mid-range versus control matchups, you look really stupid if you don't draw any of the Artie studies. 
I think you realistically need six to eight sources of card advantage in a mid-range deck to function as a mid-range deck. Would you be able to count Keeper of the Holy Lands, which is the one white and two for a 2-2 two, two that when it enters the battlefield, search your life for enchantment and then reveal it and put it in your hand? Absolutely. Cool. So just that as redundant copies of Artie's study might get there. Yes. I, I think if you're running four Keepers for Artie's study, that's enough card advantage. You don't need significantly more than that. And the thing that I think is really interesting about that approach is then you can really justify some really mean silver bullets. I don't think you can be playing Mercantile Accords. Because white, white, white in a three-color mana base sounds really difficult. And also, you can't name the number three, because right now we've described very important cards all at three mana. But you could main deck a Guiding Light. You could main deck a... I mean, you probably shouldn't, but you could main deck all sorts of Graveyard Hate. Uh, maybe the Moon also rises. Um, or it's not the Moon rises. also rises. It's just the Moon rises. The Sun rises. Uh, There's what? so many similarly named cards. Um, I'm thinking of the one in the black enchantment. Ah, I'm thinking of the white one. Yes, the moon rises, which is black and one for an enchantment. When the moon rises enters the battlefield, exile all cards from each opponent's graveyards. At the beginning of your upkeep, each opponent loses one life. There's all sorts of powerful haymaker enchantments that we have that you can really leverage and punish opponents with. Which brings us to another Artie's style deck, that isn't a mid-range deck, but is a prison deck, which is the Artie-style Enchantress decks that we've seen a bunch of, um, which are just decks that leverage all sorts of the format's most powerful enchantments. Now that they can run a bunch of tutors that are castable off Artie study, they do. They have a combo kill in the form of Writing Wonders plus that one Unraveling Enchantment I can't remember the name of. Hold on. The... Um, this we saw this in Grand Prix Verona, yes? I believe so. I'm currently scrolling through, and I'll be there in a moment. Uh, Unbound Expanse. Unbound Expanse is one and a white for an enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, if an opponent controls more lands than you, create a colorless planes token. One and a white, sacrifice Unbound Expanse, exile each non-land permanent you control, then return those cards to the battlefield under your control. So... This, plus Writing Wonders, which is one in white for an enchantment. Whenever another enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, you get a glory counter. For those of you who have not experienced glory counters yet, what they are is you lose glory counters before life, and when you have ten or more, you win the game. It's kind of reverse infect, is the way to think of it. It's infect, but life gain. So this gives the deck a combo kill where you have Writing Wonders, you've built up a couple of enchantments, of glory counters, and then you play on Bound Expanse, you sacrifice it, you flicker all of your enchantments, which re-enter, and immediately give you enough glory to win the game. Yeah. Or kill your opponent with a Reflect on Serenity that you had in play. So those decks aren't traditional mid-range decks, but I think they can serve a similar purpose in the meta, um, where they have the ability to pitch significantly over uh, aggro, and kind of go under control, or outvalue control. I think in general, one of the problems that I emotionally have with mid-range, and I'm pretty aware of the fact that this isn't, this is a personal problem, and this isn't actually a facet of the meta, is that in many cases, I think mid-range decks can be incredibly unhealthy to have around. And my specific thought on that front is that mid-range decks beat up on a lot of the decks that we traditionally expect to keep combo in check. If you have powerful tempo decks and control decks, 
that can potentially keep combo from outlineering everyone or aggro from just running people down. Mid-range decks are usually very well positioned against tempo and control. They are difficult to disrupt, and they generate a lot of card advantage. They grind those decks into the dirt. This can cause problems, especially back when we had double elimination tournaments, where combo decks were likely to get free wins going up, and more fair interactive decks had a higher chance of getting knocked down to the lower bracket, where mid-range decks would prey on the tempo and control decks that had ended up in the lower bracket, and then quickly lose the combo once they encountered them again. Once the once we switch to Swiss, I think that problem really quickly vanishes, or at the very least becomes much more of just the fate of, oh, that's who I got matched up against, and not really something you can blame anyone individual for. But I think it's something to keep in mind. If you are tired of dealing with linear decks, the time it's time to stop putting as much value in your uh, mid-range decks and really start focusing on beating those uh, linear decks even though that means you're probably going to actually be able to lose to control or be able to lose to tempo now. And I think also... Or yeah, it's possible to hedge both of those directions at the cost of your aggro matchup. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think in a lot of cases, I group aggro... Weirdly, I group ag- aggro in MSEM into combo a lot of time because people aren't playing... People aren't playing aggro decks that aren't either A, incredibly disruptive and thus fall in the tempo category, or B, are beyond explosive fast to the point where they are effectively a combo deck. Um, the GP that uh, just nobody won with a burn deck that had access to soul lands and multiple different turn three kills um, because of that speed really kind of in my mind falls more in uh, combo than it does in aggro based on how you can interact with it and what's enough interaction. One thing that I really think benefited uh, mid-range decks in MSEM starting just over a year ago was the sideboard rule. What the sideboard rule was, for people not familiar with the format, GP decklists, the main deck is submitted ahead of time. Then 24 hours after decklists are revealed, you have to submit your sideboard. So instead of guessing blindly in the dark about what decks might or might not show up, which used to be really a big problem in MSEM because of how wide the format was and how many rogue decks there were and how much people were brewing, and how small the player base was. Yeah. Instead, now you can really target specific decks. If you know you have a really hard time beating X deck without hate, or if you notice, oh my god, there's six different graveyard decks, you can really warp your sideboard around that. And that really helps mid-range, because as we mentioned, mid-range has some very polarized matchups. A mid-range deck that's very well built to beat control will trash control and usually tempo, and just lose non-stop to combo and sometimes lose non-stop to aggro. If a mid-range deck is pitched in other directions, it might have it will have a lot of time it will have a really hard time beating the mid-range mirror or the control decks. So being able to board in whatever weakness you have, the second you know, oh, there's three other mid-range decks this GP. I made a poor choice is very powerful. And I think uniquely powerful mid- for mid-range decks because of how many interchangeable parts there are. Aggro and combo decks have some amount of pieces that just need to stick in there. And they can trim some of the worst things, but you're really stuck and you really don't want to overboard. And tempo and control, usually you have the ability to say, okay, well, this interaction lines up poorly, so I'll bring in this interaction that lines up more efficiently. Or I need more win cons to beat this deck, so I'll board in a couple of board out a couple of these cards because I don't need this type of interaction, but I really need more copies of set of song. Whereas mid-range, 
you more frequently have a bunch of one-ups and you have a lot of cards that subtly hedge different things in your main deck that you can instead then say, oh, well, these eight cards are not relevant in this matchup. So that means I get eight cards that are. And that's a huge power level difference from game one to game two. Are mid-range decks running both arties and tutors? Frequently tutors, at least. Also makes sideboarding single cards against specific decks more powerful because you frequently are able to find them reliably. Yeah, mid-range decks, definitely more so than like aggro decks, don't have to mulligan as hard to find their hate pieces. Because if you have the ability to go, you know, turn one mana dork into turn two keeper of holy lands and find a one of that you stored in your sideboard just in the off chance you ended up matched against this specific combo deck, that feels great. No other deck can do it at that speed and at that power level. Um, so yeah, that's one of the real raw power of mid-range decks with sideboards. Um, the other thing that it's important to touch on is we've kind of talked about all the strengths of mid-range, and I think it's really time that we acknowledge the fact that mid-range decks haven't been dominant in MSEM in a long time. And so talking about how you beat mid-range, why, that, why this incredibly flexible hybrid archetype isn't absolutely dominant. Um, do you want to start with some of the weaknesses? Sure. So, like I mentioned earlier, it's very difficult to pitch a mid-range deck in a way that lets it be everything. And we've consistently had very diverse fields in the tournaments. Most of the mid-range decks we've seen so far have been pitched towards beating tempo and control. And as a result, have faced up not particularly well against the linear decks that currently are quite powerful and winning a lot of the GPs. If you pitch your mid-range deck to beat them, you'll have a hard time being able to outgrind control decks, things like Sultai Truck, things like the mid-range mirror. And so while you can sort of choose the weaknesses of your mid-range deck, you can't choose none. Yeah, and I think one of the important things to keep in mind in-game is be aware of your opponent's deck list. The fact that deck lists are public information, I think, drastically hurts mid-range decks more than a lot of other decks. Because mid-range decks, knowing what kinds of one-ups they have and what kind of two-for-ones they have, can really allow you to play around them. The strategy that I found really effective is some mid-range decks that are more heavily leaning on the power of Artie Study can actually be one for one. If you have a plan to deal with the arty study itself, or if they whiff hard enough, you can beat them just by, I dress this threat I'm scared of, and then I counterspell this threat that I'm scared of. And then when you arty study, I cast window shopping. And we both pull ahead, which means we're both back in square one. And part of the thing is, in some cases, mid-range decks are choosing high-value threats, but that's not necessarily the same thing as high-powered threats. They're not always picking threats that end the game very quickly. Mid-range decks usually spend a large portion of the game winning, which is why they feel so great to play. And it also means that they can spend a large portion of the game winning, and then you assemble Tron and they die. So I think keeping that in mind is trying to trade one-for-one with mid-range decks only works if you then have a plan for what you do when they try to gas back up. And it only works if they have a low number of high-impact cards in their deck. But in those cases, it's a great strategy. And otherwise, just trying to put them in a situation where 
it doesn't matter how much value they've generated, you just need to land one really big hit. Um, if you're an aggro deck facing up against mid-range, I think one of the biggest pitfalls is bolting creatures. Um, I'm actually a strong believer that, especially if you have any number of evasive creatures, everything goes face. Force your opponent to find the life gain, put them on the back foot, make them have to have all of the interaction in their deck, and just try to put yourself in a situation where they need to race the top of your deck in order to win, because there's a good chance the top of your deck is able to outrace them. And that's why I think aggro decks that are more creature-focused struggle a lot more comparatively against mid-range versus decks with a lot of reach. Especially recently, the mid-range decks we've been seeing have had uncomfortably slow clocks. And I think, frankly, I think that the moving of roll from five to six is what caused that. Yeah, because roll, when you resolve it, if you untap with it, you win the game. So it's effectively suspend one, win the game. And turn five, usually turn four with some ramp, sometimes turn three with a lot of ramp, going to I'm going to kill you on my next turn is a really impressive clock. A deck that has the ability to grind games out or win them on turn five or six is great. But a deck that has that same ability to kill their opponent on turn 7 at the kind of faster end of things starts looking a lot sketchier. Um, one thing that I was thinking of recently is the fact that if you turn to a Merciful Yorota, you kill your opponent turn 7, and that's one of the fastest clocks imaginable out of midrange decks. Usually you get faster than that because you can play more than one threat. This isn't a tempo deck. You can go Merciful Yorota into Merciful Yorota and kill them more like turn five but that's kind of alarming when we have these decks that aren't critical mass decks and aren't or are critical mass decks in a way that's difficult for mid-range to interact with it's really hard for mid-range to look at an entire board full of tron lands and say yeah i got this pretty much an ulted bahum is the only thing you can do about that that's a good way to get it but that's kind of all you got. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I hope everyone had fun um, hearing about the deep dive into mid-range. If you have any more questions or any suggestions, let us know. I hope to do one of these episodes for all the major archetypes. Um, and I'm definitely looking for people to be potential guest stars on them. So let me know if you feel confident in your skills to be able to discuss MSEM archetypes. Uh, and I'll talk to all you guys at any point in the future on the Discord. And thank you, Pipsqueak, for hosting us. Yep, absolutely. It was great to have you, Cyber. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening.